For some people, the public trust doctrine is a mantra, a set of rules to live by and conserve the land and protect hunting. But what does this mean for the federal government and conservation? Conservation started out well, but the federal government can only do so much to preserve the land. So what's going on? Let's dig into the history and effectiveness of the USA's conservation efforts under the public trust doctrine here on The Green Conversation. I'm your host, Leo Jenko. To discuss the failing of the federal government, we need to discuss the history of the public trust doctrine our legislation apparently uses. It is with this doctrine the federal government was unable to fully satisfy public calls for conservation. The federal government started to invest in conservation all the way back in 1847. A U.S. congressman named George P. Marsh gave an influential speech to the Agricultural Society of Rutland County, Vermont. Marsh was heavily concerned with the destructive forces of human society. He saw the growing urbanization and increasing deforestation. He actually wrote a whole book on this called Man and Nature. And around this time, there were no programs, agencies, initiatives, or thought about forest management for the government. In response, the federal government created the U.S. Department of Interior in 1849, the rise in travel literature gave new attention to conservation efforts. These travel literatures were basically writings about the vast landscapes and the beautiful imagery of the nation. As these writings became more popular, people became more familiar with deforestation. And it wasn't until 1857 Samuel H. Hammond wrote a book that started our hunter conservation programs. And here is why hunters have such a deep tie with conservation. But a lot has happened for conservation within the late 19th century. And over the years, more and more legislation at the federal level was passed to protect wildlife biodiversity or plant and animal populations. One of the most important series of legislation was state legislation promoting the public trust doctrine. The first time the doctrine was discussed legally was in a federal court case, Martin v. Waddell, in 19, I mean, 1842. Since then, there has been multiple federal court cases surrounding the context of the public trust doctrine. The public trust doctrine can be traced back to the Roman civil laws, where it stated that, quote, by the law of nature, these things are common to all mankind, the air, running water, the sea, and consequently the shores of the sea, end quote. Most people interpret this as equal access to nature for every individual and group. Nature is not to be changed or destroyed without the approval of the public. But today, the doctrine's a bit more complicated when it went through our court system. But today, the public trust doctrine is heavily involved in our governments, and it has spread across local, state, and federal agencies. While the idea that resources are a right for the public, the state is the entity in which we delegate the responsibility of these resources. This means that the state is now the voice and respondent to threats and our conservationists. They deem what resources are under the public trust doctrine. So then, what is a resource under the public trust doctrine? Unfortunately, the public trust doctrine has not been developed through legislation or presidencies. It has, and still is, developed through the judicial branch of government. Traditionally, the doctrine is decided at a state level. 
though at a state level, there are iconic cases that has developed the public trust doctrine that we use today. However, the first few cases were actually from the federal Supreme Court decision that laid the groundwork for state governments. I'm going to sum these up the best I can. However, the National Agricultural Law Center and the Library of Congress has much more detail on these cases if you want to know more. The first case that discussed the public trust doctrine was discussed in Martin v. Waddell in 1842. The court ruled that the public maintained a common right to fish in navigable and tidal water. More importantly, the case affirmed that the waters and the underlying land were in the trust by the state for the people. Thus, the state government has trust, but also responsibility to maintain healthy ecosystems for people to fish. This case laid groundwork for all other federal cases. The case Illinois Central Railroad Company versus Illinois in 1892 further elaborated on the role of the state. The court confirmed that the waters and lands underneath were under the trust and the state had the authority. However, private entities could use these lands and obtain property rights. But the purchase of the land must affirm the land will fulfill the purpose of the public trust. So now we're going to see this weird business transition where we give ownership of the land, but the land still must remain or maintained under this public trust doctrine. Later on, the next case was Greer versus Connecticut in 1896. This case specifically influenced hunting as we know it today. The ruling argued that since the state is the trustee of the land, they are responsible for the management and regulation of wildlife. Before this ruling, only water and land were considered part of the trust. Just from this case alone changed the trajectory of the doctrine, complicating the upkeep and responsibility. This case is the reason why there are hunting licenses, hunting seasons, illegal hunting equipment, and more. All these regulations take root in the state's responsibility to maintain the health of the wilderness. However, there may be a change in who will influence the future of the public trust doctrine. In 2015, 21 Platons filed against the USA, creating the Juliana versus United States case. This case was taken up by the Ninth Court in 2020, but it ultimately denied the case. The court argued that the plaintiffs had no standing. Instead, the court found that the case was more appropriate for other political branches of government to handle. This decision may signal that the next battle of the public trust doctrine would more likely have to exist in the legislative branch. I am not a lawyer, but this case, along with another called Sackett versus the EPA, seem to indicate that the current legality of the doctrine has been settled at least in court, and further development should take place in other branches of government. So... Why is the public trust doctrine argued to be misguided and this isn't the proper way that we should conserve? I was looking through the internet and came across an article from Georgetown University. The author, and I am so sorry for mispronouncing this name, uh, Camilla Brandfield Harvey, 
compared the Roman origin of the public trust doctrine to the English application of the doctrine. Romans wanted to ensure private land along the coastland could not prevent use of waterways, but the English application apparently focused more on giving possession of the land to barons against the crown. Now, given that juxtapose, Bradfield Harvey argued that we may need to sort of let go of this public trust doctrine in our legislation. However, I, I disagree that the public trust doctrine should be overturned and removed uh, in our court rulings. The article that was written didn't give any defense to this claim to drop the doctrine. It only highlighted the disjuncture between Roman and English public trust doctrine. So just because the doctrine was created differently between two societies doesn't mean the idea today should be abandoned. After all, blood lineage dilutes and changes after a few generations. So too does abstract theoretical thoughts. However, this spurred some curiosity, and I wanted to look at other perspectives on the doctrine. An article written by James Huffman for the Property and Environmental Research Center had an interesting take on the limitations of the current doctrine in the United States. The main premise of their critique focused on the court's refusal to expand the doctrine to the uplands of wildlife and wildlife habitat. Earlier, I mentioned Greyer versus Connecticut, stating it influenced the hunting regulations today. However, this ruling has been overturned and a more definitive legal definition of the state's responsibility was established. Tomer versus Whitsell and Hughes versus Oklahoma were two cases that impacted this new definitive definition. The state is still responsible for maintaining the wilderness and the wildlife within, but not through ownership, but through police authority now. Therefore, wildlife species are not owned by the state. This is beneficial because it prevents the state from dictating who can hunt and interact with wildlife, a direct opposition to the King of England who ruled all the deer and did not allow deer to be hunted by peasants. This loss of ownership, however, did come with a large negative side effect. Since the state no longer owns the land per se, the state could not prevent anyone from taking land. However, the land still needs to be regulated in accordance with the public trust doctrine as ruled in Illinois Central Railroad Company versus Illinois, though I could be wrong. And I think it is here where I also take issue with the public trust doctrine. I, I do not believe the doctrine needs more development. The issue with private land for public trust versus public land for private trust creates multiple problems when investing for conservation efforts. There is a great book called Crimes Against Nature, Squatters, Poachers, and Thieves, and the Hidden History of American Conservation. The book comes from a more progressive-ish direction, focused on classism that stemmed from privatizing land under the public trust doctrine. The author, Carl Jacoby, argued that the privatized land prevents the freedom of the public from using the wilderness. You, as an individual, then, are unable to use the land for foraging, hunting, or roaming unless you pay or rent the land. And here is where I see conservative values expressed in the book, even though it is progressive. First, equal opportunity. The ability to experience nature is not easily available for everyone. And privatized land prevents others from enjoying the beauty. And to me, that sounds like they're limiting the market of the land which I believe in some form of free market. 
Additionally, it prevents individuals from gathering materials and possibly partaking in the free market around these resources. There is a reason why monopolies are an enemy to capitalism. This issue of the monopolization of the wilderness for conservation is not really discussed in much of the literature, in terms of the overall literature. Though there is an issue of the monopolization of the wilderness for conservation, there is another issue, and, and that is the economic restraints that help maintain the environment, a contentious topic Democrats would like to avoid in any discussion. However, privatization is a necessity opposition to the public trust because the government is unable to maintain the environment. To protect the public trust, the government must create, enforce, and pay for resources, manpower, and other services. If, say, no public land was privatized, the government would be the sole defender against a growing population in need of more resources to maintain in the current economic standards of living. The current finances of a government are horrendous, as we know by our trillions of dollars in debt. Imagine then that the government alone trying to protect the wilderness from further destruction and prevent the depletion of the remaining forests and resources. The government alone cannot do this. So privatization is a bit necessary, at least for now. And there may be ways to limit the monopolization of public land purchases. We could limit how much public land an individual or business may own. However, there are questions that do come to mind. For example, will everyone have the means to preserve and maintain the land at a reasonable quality? How many property conflicts will be pursued when animals cross borders? Will policy to address environmental emergencies require everyone to give consent to cross multiple private lands? You can think of many, many more questions. There will never be a clean answer because we live in an economy that monetizes everything. One cannot simply do and not receive a paycheck to pay bills. No matter how good your heart is, logistics for policies and conflict are easier when there are fewer people to communicate between. So while the public trust doctrine is a good thing, economic freedom and equal opportunity do not seem in reach. This goes against conservatives' values and will be the hardest pill to swallow. Now, there is room to innovate, though, for conservatives. We could argue to limit acreage purchases of public land, but the land could remain open for agencies to address emergencies and conflict. So while the public trust doctrine is a good thing, economic freedom and equal opportunity do not seem in reach. We either protect the land for a future resource for future business, and we restrict people from being in the wilderness market, or we open it all up to people and have that, quote, free market, unquote, but there is difficulty in regulating it. So there may be things that go against conservative values and will be the hardest pill to swallow. Now, there may be still room to innovate. Conservatives could argue to limit acreage purchases of public land. The land could remain open for agencies to address emergencies and conflict, though we have to address private law issues with that as well. But if any damages occurs from these agencies, the owner of the land can sue. It's a small brainstorm, and I don't think it's fully comprehensive, but it's a start.
to end this episode off, we really need people to understand that there are legal consequences to any public trust doctrine, and that is rules. Rules plague conservation. By its very nature, conservation at its core is rule-based. We can't have protected lands for everyone without rules, and this forces people to change their way of life when it comes to hunting and foraging. And unfortunately, I may have to change my own behavior at some point, which saddens me. Quoting from Jacoby's book, quote, Law and its antithesis, lawlessness, are therefore the twin axes around which the history of conservation revolves. To achieve this vision of rational, state-managed landscape, conservation erected a comprehensive new body of rules governing the use of the environment. But to create new laws also meant to create new crimes. End quote. If no rules are needed for healthy ecosystems, conservation wouldn't exist. As a famous doctor once said, good men don't need rules. We would not need rules to help us preserve nature if there were restraints within our economy or in our own selves. Our economic values do not consider nature in its entirety. And how can we? Nature is at the highest level of complex systems. Take down a forest and you can change rain patterns and then vegetable growth and so on and so on. We may never fully understand how our behaviors impact the environment, and this means we need rules to ensure we are operating within parameters or limitations where we can control ourselves. But we do need to be careful when looking towards laws and legislation for conservation efforts. Conservation, especially under the public trust doctrine, is going to give government more power. It depends on how much we want to give, what kind we want to give, and what checks and balances people are willing to implement to ensure the government does what it's supposed to do. The issue now is how and when we allow the government to create and enforce rules to preserve our environment without outlawing our traditional activities such as hunting. Currently, politicians are not thinking about power balancing when it comes to environmental policies and government agencies. I mentioned this in earlier episodes. Alternatively, and more of a pipe dream, we can get more honest politicians, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Now, I know many people who hunt and probably do not like government and conservation laws. Though there is only a subset of hunters, studies have shown resistance to conservation efforts. In a study published in 2018, York Farsith and Greg Farsith conducted interviews of hunters in South Louisiana, and they found that local hunters were angered by conservation efforts and hunting illegally to obtain food. Stephen Alazan has written multiple articles on this conflict. There will be people who ignore the rules. The goal then is to legislate policy, rules, and laws that are unbiased. Only then can we find a consensus of conservation policy. But given the fragmentation of our nation, I don't see this happening anytime soon, if at all. This battle to create a non-political conservation effort will also call people to change their culture and worldview. This is why people break the laws and rebel in the first place. People subject to these rules will be disorganized and do not want to change. So if we do enforce conservation efforts under this public trust doctrine, economic inequalities are going to be exposed. People will struggle through transition. However, how do we change if we allow groups to maintain their way of life that harms the environment? 
I don't see these discussions as a means of control or economic privilege. For a Christian, an act of love is addressing a brother or sister and telling them about their sinful behavior. As well, you preach the gospel for people to hear and change, because you believe God is better than anything else the world can give. If people want a better life, they will look towards God. This is my take on conservation rules. You can't force people to change, but out of the goodness of our environment, you need to have tough conversations with people. Why should we let destructive values persist out of respect for culture or economic inequality? It won't be easy. It will be a challenge to ensure people are not lost when we make changes towards a more environmentally friendly economy and culture as well. But that's just my take on this. I hope you learned a little bit more about the public trust doctrine and what we can do to sort of improve it. But right now, the public trust doctrine is in limbo, and we need it to move through the government since the courts have basically stonewalled any further development under their branch. Go and lobby your state and local governments. Start moving the needle in the legislative process. You just listened to The Green Conversation with Leo. If you would like to contribute to the podcast, please visit leojenko.org and sign up to be a member of the community. As a member, you can get content all year long compared to public listeners. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Search for The Green Conversation. Music was produced by Michael David Mobley. Sound and scripts were produced in-house. Research to make this episode is cited in the episode description. If you would like to make a one-time donation, please contact me for further details. Contact information is on the website. Look for the next episode in two weeks. See you then.